So even if you did not vaccinate, you would have wild types, yes, and you would yes. probably have uh, not one wild type in your farm. There's yes. what you call quasi-species. So, so they are slightly different, uh, all of them. Hello. Welcome to this edition of Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Beringer Ingelheim. My name is Peter Best. So, Dr. Raskin, would you say then that uh, vaccination immediately comes into the frame? You've described the stabilizing of the sow herd and so on. Uh, so you are assuming there is no vaccination taking place already at this site and that vaccination should begin or should we be changing the vaccination? What, were, what are we saying at this uh, uh, in so, re that relation in yeah most of i think most of europe uh, us asia most of sows are always uh, already vaccinated so i would say more than 80% of sows are probably vaccinated the question is more are they following uh, a really a strict scheme on that what we recommend, and that's not only us, it's, it's a general recommendation to vaccinate the sows every three to four months. So that part is quite easy, I would say, if you're doing that. The, the tricky part here is in, in vaccination and immunization is the gills. So, so gills play a big role here, how you introduce your gills. So if you're following your vaccination scheme on the sows, and then, uh, then you should be able to have a stable sow herd. What you what struggle with here is the gills that come in as a susceptible animal, first of all. If they're not immunized probably before they go into the sow herd, they could be susceptible to the virus. Or if they were infected closely or shortly before they're introduced, they could bring the virus in and reintroduce it into the sows. So the gills play an important part, and what we recommend is to, to immunize the gills, start the immunization of the gills at least 12 weeks before they're introduced into the sow herds by a vaccination, so we are sure that they're probably immunized and also had a chance to clear the virus before they go in. Mm. Actually, we recommend two vaccinations, so one vaccination 12 weeks and one eight weeks before introduction, and a quarantine period of 12 weeks. Is this standard practice in your experience now that you know sow herd owners recognise this with their gilt replacement policies, or are there some really frequently occurring gaps as far as uh, that's concerned? Uh, unfortunately, that is not a common practice, and the, probably the the best reason, or uh, it's not a good reason, but at least it's, it's very often the reason is that. Uh, having a, a gilt pool uh, just for 12 weeks that has some space demand. And uh, in order to save space, you want maybe only to, uh, to have gilts for, for eight weeks or, or even shorter before you introduce it. Worst case, you, you purchase your gilts and you introduce them directly into the sow herd. In that case, you have no chance to immunize them and you have no chance to to cool them down or, or to make sure that they're not bringing virus into the farm. And so this is, this is a really, really dangerous behavior. We know that if you can, 
you can bring in girls um, not not too often, so maybe every three to four months. That allows uh, pers virus in your farm to to cool down, and and if you then can put your gills into a quarantine, you have a much higher chance to give birth to first virus negative piglets, which is the first uh, thing you have to do. If you're, not, if you're not able to do that, you have no chance to be uh, to, to handle your first virus later in the system. But you talked about whole herd vaccination. So what other parts of the herd are you going to be vaccinating that you weren't vaccinating before? Uh, you know, is it right the way through or is there some particular stage you would look at yeah we the other part of the whole herd is the the piglets or the growing pigs and there unfortunately we see that there's much less uh, vaccination taking place so and that is a really big pool so let's say today um, when we have 12 15 17 some cases 18 20 live-born piglets we would have between 10 and 20 times as many animals uh, as growing animals. We know when they become virus infected, they are viremic for way longer than the sows. We also know that they, they have a virus replication that is way higher. So if we're not handling them well, we have a huge pool of purse virus here that is able to, to spread and infect back to your sow herd or to your gills, or whatever. So if we are not probably hand, probably handling these uh, animals and vaccinate them as well, and that was the last part of the whole herd, then we are creating this, this uh, huge pool of purse virus just circulating around. And because the number of animals here is way higher than your sows, uh, then you're really having a huge number of, of purse do you think it's a consideration of the cost, cost of vaccination, that people are not doing this already with their weaned pigs, their grown pigs? I'm sure costs play a big part here. So we, we very often we hear, hear that um, farmers or, or vets do not see the value of uh, the vaccination here because it's hard to measure. And maybe... First of all, to measure uh, the value, you, you really have to measure something. So you have to measure the growth of your pigs. You have to measure if they are coughing and so on. Uh, but that is the direct value, the benefit of vaccination. But the indirect benefit of vaccination is reducing the amount of virus that is circulating in your farm. And that is even harder to, to measure. Uh, so what we hear, the reason, yeah, the cost, but the cost is linked to the perceived lack of value or of of the vaccination. But PERS is routinely described as the most economically important disease <laughs> of the swine industry globally. I mean, even the direct cost, presumably, would be more than enough to justify a vaccination policy, wouldn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is... Uh, I think this is a philosophic question that is uh, even harder to answer. But than, I'm wondering uh, if, you know, PERS have been around so long, have people got sort of blasé about it? You know, PERS, we know, has been around, is nothing new, and we'll continue doing what we're doing. Uh, whereas, in fact, what you're describing is a constantly changing situation. Uh, the whole reason for sequencing is, you know, that we're getting more and more 
uh, variants of the virus coming out, and we're seeing a greater variety of clinical signs and combinations with other pathogens. Yeah, this is, uh, and, and actually there may be another reason that is uh, triggering this. So because you hear that the, the virus is mutating or recombining all the time, so it's a moving target, um, is that a reason to do vaccination? Because you, it's escaping all the time anyway. So what can I do? It will just be changing. But I would say it, it, it's absolutely the opposite. This is actually probably the best reason to vaccinate. The only virus or the only first um, virus you would know exactly how it looks like would be the virus that comes from a vaccine. So that would continuously be the same that you put in there. So that's the only chance actually to control what's going on. So if you're using the same vaccines in your sow and in your growing pigs, then you have a chance to control what is actually going on. If you just leave it open to the virus uh, to mutate and uh, recombine, it will be a constantly moving target. So you have a chance to, to, uh, to go backwards uh, and say, we can at least put something in here that can fight uh, what is going on with the wild types that are circulating. Okay. And it's not, a, it's not something that just happens over a week or a month. You have to do this continuously. Sure. But recombination, I mean, I don't actually know. Is mutation and recombination the same thing as far as the PERS vaccine is concerned, or they're two completely different things? Mutations, small mutations, is happening every time uh, PERS virus uh, replicate yes. because it's had what you call... It's lacking a proofreading. So when it replicates and uh, create another virus, it's not comparing with the previous one. It just put out a new one. So uh, uh, small any, errors. Any copy choices? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's small, uh, small. Um, so if you have a, a typewriter and you are trying to to write exactly what you had before, you have small uh, slashes that are, are wrong, but you don't correct it. You can read it anyway. It works still. But, but uh, recombination would actually be more or less take the pages from two different books and post it, put these together. Uh -huh. And then you have something completely new. Um, and recombination has... Uh, we have to understand that recombination is something that is very common. But we probably didn't know how common it was before we start to look into more than just of five. When we started to look into the other open re reading frames, we realize that post-virus do this happily. Do they do it more than other viruses? Recombine, I mean. Other um, RNA viruses. Then RNA viruses like to do this, but other viruses like influenza virus, uh, in, in influenza virus, we call it reassortment. Yes, yes. And I think that's well known that it's, it's also happy to take uh, parts from other viruses. Um, it probably even happens way more often than we think of because most of these recombinants, as we call them, they're not viable. Um, so they would die. But a few of them are successful and all of a sudden we have a new virus circulating. Now, this is a highly significant event, recombination, or is it academic interest, in fact, if I may be blunt? <laughs> 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 it, it's uh, it's yeah probably mostly academically uh, of academic interest uh, scientists, 
they they love seem to love this uh, a lot of research uh, money is put into yeah, it yeah. and they also love to to publish uh, studies about recombinants but now and then we we see recombinants coming out that all of a sudden they they turn out to be highly virulent and then it's not just a, a re of research interest then it's really yeah. something practical that is affected recombination does not necessarily result in more or less virulence does it it just it's it's as you've described it's just happened some of these copies are not proofread and they happen to be more most virulent. most of the time you wouldn't even recognize it and you yes. wouldn't see it so most of the time there would be basically no uh, difference in virulence and uh, yeah. and pathogenicity yeah. yeah but now and then we okay. see a completely okay. new virus so well. if i were to be a field vet or a farmer, should I care about recombination? Are there practical reasons I should be more aware of it than I am? I would only care about it if I'm, I'm trying to find out where my virus came from. So if I have an introduction of a first virus into my farm, uh, then I want to sequence it and compare it with others. And then I would care about it. On a daily basis, handling purse in your farm controlling it i wouldn't care about it it's it's not affecting the way you're acting to control purse anyway you are listening to meet the expert a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Beringer ingelheim if you would like to know more about the subject we're discussing in this podcast, additional information is available offline. So just to, to go back on that, if I may, the situation where it might be of interest is if you've got a, a particular circumstance or a situation that you're unable to describe in other ways. And so recombination might be part of that story that you want to investigate. But if you've discovered that recombination is giving you the, your situation, can you physically do anything about it? You can only do what you would have to do anyway. So vaccinate, immunize your animals, and, and control your pig flow and your management. That's what you can do. You cannot do... You cannot do any, or you cannot do anything about recombination. You cannot undo it uh, or reverse it. Um, but vaccination, you say, you know, recombination won't take place in a vaccinated herd. Oh or yeah, it does it, take place, but it takes place everywhere. And probably the most well-known recombinants are recombinations between two vaccines, which also happens. And why is that so? It's not because that recombination between two vaccines happens more often, but it's because with vaccines, we know exactly how they look like in all the genome. So we have, you could say, we have the, we have the two books yes. uh, in front of us, so now we can compare each sentence and see yes. where it came from. Yes. If we have a wild type, wild types recombine all the time as well. But you don't have the books. You don't know. You you don't know the the combination of letters here. Yes. So you're not able to detect it. Then you can find recombinants where you have a vaccine and a wild type because at least now one of the parents or one of the books 
is in front of you, so you can see where it's uh, uh, diverting from from that book. So so that's how you discover uh, recombinance. So recombinance takes place all the time when you have more than one virus replicating in a cell at the same time. Then they can share, you can say, pages or or parts of the virus. But but in my non-veterinary terms, vaccinating isn't adding to the situation in a way you don't want by making another virus available for recombination. It's it's being more helpful. It's not being counterproductive even at that level. Exactly. So even if you did not vaccinate, you would have wild types yes, and you would yes. probably have uh, not one wild type in your farm. There's yes. what you call quasi-species. So, so they are slightly different, uh, all of them. So And the, the also in a farm, uh, the virus is mutating over time and diverting and that could be uh, recombining again. Or you right. could have an introduction of a virus from outside. Yes. What I'm saying here is that when you use a vaccine, you know exactly what right. you put into the farm, right. Right. and you have a chance to at least immunize all the piglets with exactly the same right. uh, virus uh, in order to control. And it's the, good not- the good news, sorry, the good news is, I suppose, that all the evidence, the vaccine is protective, regardless of the type, regardless of the identity of those, vac- of those viruses that you identify. It's well known that that PERS vaccines are not uh, protecting animals uh, from getting infected later on. So it's it's uh, helping them to fight the PERS virus faster and to have a low, lower level of PERS virus when they are infected. It's not preventing them from being infected later on in their life. And they can also have a replication. But since you have a lower number of replication, a lower number of viruses, and the duration is shorter... Of course, that is also reducing the chance that you would then have a recombination. Yes. yes. Uh, but it's not a, it's, you're not completely protected from getting infected yes. uh, from vaccination. Yes. Yeah. That's for sure. But it's certainly true that uh, regardless of the type of virus you're looking at, you are getting uh, effective protection from using the, the vaccine. Yeah. You reduce, again, you reduce uh, the, the duration of the replication of a wild type, and you reduce the amount of it. Uh, so that's already uh, a better, giving you a better chance to, to control a recombination. Right. Although we, or not although, but very often the most uh, interesting recombinants that has been described from researchers are involving uh, vaccines. And I don't know, that's uh, probably because it's, like the popular press or whatever it is, uh, hot news, or because it's not actually it's not more interesting than when wild types are recombining. But if you don't know the wild types, you don't know. Yes, yes. You, what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, well, it's the same story. Yeah, yes, yeah, just different uh, characters. Doctor Ratkin, thank you very much for this. That's been fascinating. You have been listening to a Meet the Expert podcast presented by Boehringer Inkeline. Please note that other podcasts in the series are becoming available. Stay tuned and thank you for listening.